Good afternoon, America. Welcome to Lessons from the Front, sponsored by Carry the Load. I am your host, Todd Boating, and have another couple great guests on, uh, on tap for today. And these guests are not just uh, great Americans in the sense that you're going to find out about, but they are, they are great Americans in what they do well beyond their daily lives. And that is Frederick Frazier, who is representing Assist the Officer out of Dallas, Texas, and Amber Helms, who is with Heroes on the Water, one of our uh, both very long-term, uh, long-time uh, uh, partners of ours uh, as nonprofit partners. And that's one of the things that we do here that's a little bit different at Carry the Load. We are actually uh, very transparent in who our partners are, which is a little different from some of our, uh, our cohorts out there who also do great work. They do great things, but we like to let everybody know these are our partners, get to know them. We utilize something called no wrong door, which means all of our partners end up coming through one door, excuse me, all the people that, that, uh, that are part of our network, they come through a door. If we, uh, if we help somebody that, that, uh, you know, say they come to Frederick and Frederick, uh, talks to him and he says, you know what? The assistance you need is not what we provide, but let me get you over to Amber at Heroes on the Water. That's what we mean by no wrong door. And that's one of the great things about this organization on the whole and our partners and the way they help each other. So without further ado, let's just kind of get right to it. Frederick Frazier, uh, always on the road. Frederick is uh, in Austin on his way back from San Antonio. Frederick, are you at liberty to tell us what you're doing uh, on the road right now? Well, I, you know, I've, I've had uh, I've had some family issues where I had, my mom passed away in October, and and so we've got a home in San Antonio that I'm still managing. So while I'm here in Austin, and I had a little bit of a break today from the capital madness, I ran down there to check on everything. Uh, and so that's that's been an ongoing deal, and you know, uh, it's it's family, and it's it's one of those things when you you know we all get older that uh, our parents do too, and and uh, they pass away and we've got to take on those responsibilities for the family. So um, that, that's what very I very sorry to hear about your mother passing my friend. Well, it, it, uh, she was a true leader and a true patriot and uh, she left a lot of those skills with me. And so, and it, it's been an honor to take care of the things for her. So tell, tell us about her a little bit. You, you say she was uh, she was a great leader. She was a great patriot. What is, yeah. uh, <laughs> You know, it's kind of where you start, and you know, you—I you, uh, was adopted into this military family. So, uh, you know, your when your parents are not the parents that you were born with, and you have a, a military family that you're in, you, you, you there's different expectance of what you're going to do every single day. That because that that man that is your father that leaves every day in a uniform and then comes back home in a uniform, and it's funny that I carried on that kind of tradition, going that same route. Uh, leaving in a uniform, coming home in a uniform. Uh, and, it, and you're not necessarily, it's not necessarily mean you're going to have that uniform on all the time, but you still are wearing it, even if you're not wearing it. And, and so that, that family is what molded me and, and molded uh, the culture around me. And so you, when, you, when, you, when you're born into it, you don't know anything different. And uh, she was always the per first person to, to give me praise and always the first person to give me criticism. And and uh, and that and that's what builds a good family. Uh, never I believe been, we call that love. Yeah, <laughs> and you know it's it's sometimes it's it's tough love, uh, and then that's just the way life goes. Uh, so it, it's uh, we never we we were taught to stand for the flag, uh, uh, pray at dinner, 
uh, all those things that, you know, some of those values that we've lost a lot in, in, this, in this country, uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance and, uh, and honor those that served. And so those values I will never forget. And, and they started at home. And, uh, and when I say true patriot, that's, that's who she was. And, uh, you know, when, <laughs> even when the fact, when the ball game was starting on TV, everyone had to be quiet, you know, because the national anthem was coming on. It, it, those, those traditions still happen in my house. Uh, and, and I'll even see my nine-year-old standing there, you know, like he's at the game. And I think that's so unique uh, that you have that happening from a generation to another generation. And Lock so, that attention. I love yep, it. Yep. And, and a Amber Helms, you, you are no stranger to, uh, to the life that, that Frederick was describing. Um, I don't know if you were raised in it, but you certainly married into it, did you not? I certainly married into it. I married my high school sweetheart straight out of high school. Um, did, he did 20 years in the Army, so I was a military wife, followed him all around the world. So I am fully aware of um, uniform on, uniform off coming in. So it, it... And so were you guys married uh, before he went into the military? No, he'd already been in two years. He'd already done his basic AIT and then his first, a year of his first duty assignment, in, in, which was in Germany. So the, we got married and 18 year old Amber went on an airplane to Germany to be <laughs> with my brand new husband. So mom and dad whew, left them in tears at the airport. So, oh my, yeah, no, yeah, cell, no now, cell phones in. Yeah, now as a parent of a 25 and a 23 year old, I can't even. I don't know how my my parents did that, but I, you know, you're 18. When you're 18, you think you can just conquer the world. You, I was. Oh. See you later, bye. Well, you know, we used to we used to have a, a a saying in the Marine Corps that was, you know, if you think it's tough being a Marine, try being a Marine's wife. <laughs> and and you know and, and Frederick you, you you know you laugh at that but I I have to you know to kind of shift back to you for a minute where I got to believe you know and and I was arrogant enough to think that you know that that just applied to the Marine Corps and obviously you know it it uh, it, it doesn't but I never thought about it from the perspective of uh, the police department and you made a comment years ago uh, for those who who aren't aware our nonprofit partners we bring. Uh, our partners together every year, and we have uh, you know a, a little bit of a, uh, a gathering and a brain dump. And we were talking about PTS and all the PTS that that uh, uh, everybody was was dealing with. And obviously, you know, Amber's group deals with that a lot. You made the comment about how a lot of these guys would leave the battlefield, end up in the police department or the fire department without ever treating the PTS. And now they've just compounded a problem because you guys are fighting a, a, a war daily. I mean, heck, all we got to do is look at what just happened in Colorado. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we, you know, and it's it's still happening. We had an individual that we helped out yesterday uh, getting him in, into a treatment facility. And and we had to go back. You kind of you kind of have to unpack a person. Right. And you unpack them by going, well, how did it get to this level? Well, it was, he was ex-military and came in the department. Uh, you know that the psych services do, do what they can, but there's, there's a lot of things that start the trigger mechanism when you become a police officer and you're doing the daily grind. 
jumping out of the car, doing all the things that happen, your adrenaline dumps, all those things are, are multi multiplying constantly. And, you know, they happen in the military as well, but they just don't happen every single day. And when you get these young officers that come from the military to the transition point of going into police work, the, the moment they come out of the military and they go into an academy, it's like hell week all again for nine months, you know? So they're, they're basically being retrained to be a civilian police officer, you know, if you, that's what you want to call it, but they're going through a boot camp for nine months. And for nine months, they're treated like crap and they were, they're, they're basically putting their bodies to the max. And then they go straight from there to training on the street. And from there, <laughs> that world changes because, you know, we don't go to the nice parts of town. Uh, we're normally sent to the Southern sectors or the sectors that need the most help. That's the most officers. And those areas are very, they're very fluid. There's lots of action, lots of shootings. Uh, you know, we had the most murders in our history last year. Well, those don't come by accident because we have all those murders. That means we had that many shootings. We had more than that shootings uh, and all the other calls that happen along the way that are very traumatic. And we're short officers, just like many departments are across the country. So the officers are taxed to do all that work uh, double with, you know, with, with less, you know, do more with less. That's a, I think that's a military saying as well. Uh, you, you just, whatever you have, you make it happen. And so that, that mindset doesn't, it does, it never has a chance to slow itself down or to, or to gain back what it needed to heal itself. Um, and we've, and those of us who've been through like the, the any of the mental health training or the, the, the brain Institute uh, training, any of those trainings sh show you that, we have to pull back from, from the daily, not listening to the radio, trying to slow ourselves down, doing things that our mind can slow down to, well, they don't have that chance. And they, cause they're coming from military straight to a police work. And then, and then all of a sudden the implosion inside happens. And that's what ATO does. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and like heroes on the water, all of us have a function that we try to figure out how to help these guys and get them better. And just like the one we did yesterday, getting him to the treatment facility where he he needs to relax, he needs to he needs to un, he needs to unpack himself to where he can fix some of the things that just have never stopped going for him. Yeah, and and when you start talking about unpacking yourself, you know the 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 visual that comes to mind for me personally um, is we're sitting in an airplane, the plane's in trouble, the oxygen masks fall. And, and I always, you know, I never really, it never really made sense to me growing up. They say, you know, please put your own oxygen mask on before you help somebody else. That's when you talk about unpacking yourself, that's the visual that I always get is that we have to take care of ourselves and make sure that we're okay before we can focus on everybody else. And it does a police officer. And, I, and I'm, I've heard you say this before as well, and, and not in these words, but it does a police officer no good to get out in the community and try and take care of everybody else and help them and protect them if they're not in the right frame of mind. It, it doesn't. It, and it even, it could start with the simplest uh, interaction with a, a vehicle stop or uh, a call to a home. Anything that's just, the trigger effect is, is, is waiting for that time bomb. And we're, we all are walking time bombs. I mean, it, it, there's certain things that just, that make us unravel. And, and when you have that in, 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 a, in a stress situation that officers are put in, and, and, and you know, I had, I'll give you an example. 
when we had the, the George Floyd riots were happening, I worked 26 days for those riots, 26 days. I, I, I told this story at the Capitol yesterday and people never understand what it's like to work a riot. And the first two days we had 11 squad cars burned. We had millions of dollars in damage to our downtown, completely destroyed. And, and it was like, everybody was against us. It wasn't, it wasn't just the folks that were coming downtown. We had city councilmen, we had, we had commissioners, we had congressmen, we had congresswomen, we had all these people coming out of the woodwork and they were marching with these individuals that were destroying these towns. Well, Dallas was, was just the same. We had, we had, we had uh, council members that were marching with these people and they're, and they're, and they're attacking our officers like you've never seen it. And you can't describe it because it, you'd have to be in it. And it's, a, and it's a complete war zone. And you're trying to do your best to keep everything under control. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, there's, there's 3,100 officers on the, the police department. And when you have 50,000 people in a downtown area that wants to, want to take it over, they're going to take it over because you just don't have the numbers. And, and I had... We had an intersection where we had already got a squad car burned and they had poured the gasoline on top of the squad car with two officers in it. And, and uh, they hadn't lit it yet, but before we could get them, right when we got them out, they lit that squad on. So we cleared it. We cleared that whole intersection. And I had to tell people that we're down there for, maybe some of them were there for the right reason because they just wanted to voice their opinion, but they got caught up in it. And I said, you know, you need to move because this intersection is very dangerous at the time. And they're like, you need a bullet in your head. And you know, that's how people talk to us during those situations. And they start screaming at me that I need to be, you know, a bullet to my head. I hope my kids uh, get raped. I hope your, your, your family dies. That is a wartime situation. And when people don't understand that's, that's what that is, you, then you can't communicate with those people. They've, they've never been in something like that to say, that's what an officer had to deal with. And I'm watching these young rookie officers that are holding these lines. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they're, if it's a female that's 5'5 and 105 pounds and she's holding that shield and she's holding that helmet and they're throwing everything at her, you know, and she's still holding that line. And she's not holding it just for her. She's holding it for everyone there and she's holding it for the city. She's holding it for the country. But these people want to go through that line. And that, but she's holding it. So when she gets off work, that at that, whenever that shifts over with, or whenever that incident's over with, she's now got to unpack all that of what these people were trying to do to her. And she knows that that's the society that she's protecting at the same time. So it's a lot to take in, and it's one of wow. those life examples. Wow. And and you're okay. So this is actually Amber. This is a very good segue to you. You. You know, everything Frederick just talked about, and he's now he comes home as an officer. And it, at this point, he's experienced way more than, than these rookies that he's talking about. But he comes home, and now he's got a loving wife who's there to, to, to be with him. But she's never been through any training on how to handle that. Nope. And, if she, and if she has, it's, it's certainly nothing that, that, you know, that the departments have put together because that's not where the funds are allowed to go. So Amber, from, from the standpoint of somebody who's at home waiting for that, how do you handle that? How do you address that? It's difficult because you normally they can't come home and tell you what, what, what they experienced. 
So you don't even get the full story. You don't understand why they're grumpy, they're moody, their their fuse is very short. Um, they're hyper vigilant. You know, you go to the restaurant and and you know that somebody drops something, and they're uh, you know they're ready they're ready to fight, ready to go, and uh, it's it's very difficult to as a wife to um, or spouse to to handle that. Absolutely. Um, you just did it. I, so I, how would you, you know, and, and I can tell it's, it's, it is actually a little bit of a challenge to, to, to talk about that, mm-hmm. but how would you say, Amber, that, that, that has prepared you for heroes on the water, knowing that these guys are coming to you? I mean, you know, you've, you've seen the effects of it. You know, you just described it, dropping a, a, a knife in a restaurant and reacting to it. You know what they're dealing with. How did that prepare you to help these these young men and women at Heroes on the Water? Well, I can tell you that in my in my experience, I knew that when my husband would go fishing, it took the stress, the stress seemed to melt off. So whether it was on the bank, in a kayak, in a little boat, it didn't matter. I noticed that years and years ago when my boys were very little, that if he would go fishing for a couple of hours. It just seemed to reset him a little bit. It, mm-hmm. it didn't solve everything. All of those things were still going on in his head. But it, I noticed that for my husband, fishing made him focus on something that quieted the rest of his mind. And so we... Way back when we were at Fort Bragg, he would go out in a little boat and then I'd get the boys up for breakfast and we would drive to the little pond and we would meet him and get on the little boat and it made the biggest difference. And so I knew and for, for myself that I needed to make this happen as much as I could. And that segue is to when he went and got the kayak, oh, uh, 2008, 2009, somewhere about there. And that's how we found out about Heroes on the Water. So, so tell us a little bit about Heroes on the Water and, and, and what's the mission and, and how, do you, how do you translate what, what he experienced into that, into that experience for these young men and women who, who need that reset? How, yeah. do, how does it work? So Heroes on the Water was founded in 2007. Um, Several folks, including Jim Dolan, the founder, uh, went out. God rest his soul. God rest his soul. And um, Miss Daly. He, they, they went down to Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio and decided to start helping some folks. Thinking about the fact that this was something that, that they could do. This was something that uh, soldiers who were going through the, the therapeutic program there at Brooks Army Medical Center could get in a kayak and go out for a little bit. And on one occasion, um, they took a gentleman out who had had a TBI, pretty bad one, and he had a stutter that he just couldn't seem to to get a a handle on. And they met him at the shore, got him out on a kayak, went fishing, come back in, and they're walking back over to put everything up. And the gentleman walks up and he just starts talking did you see this? And did you see that? And I caught this and I did this and I can't believe I did this. And everybody stopped for a second and looked at him 
And it took him about 30 seconds of explaining the story that he realized and caught himself and said, I didn't stutter. I just said all of that and didn't stutter. And he said, I've been at BAMC for two years going to therapy after therapy after therapy and they couldn't help me. God, that gave me chills. And you guys just gave me hope. And that was all it took. I heard that story and decided I've got to do whatever I can, knowing my experience with my husband and knowing the experience with other folks. We've just got to give them a reset, give them some time on the water. If you've never been in a kayak, it is a completely different experience than a boat. You're right there sitting at the, at the water level, just submerses your whole body in every move. Um, nature, Nature makes a difference. Nature will heal. I'll be darned. I'm telling you, that, that gave me chills, Amber. The 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 stuttering and then the all of a sudden the excitement and there's so do, do you know, have you when was the last time anyone heard from that that gentleman? I mean, it was it was question. I'm not sure. I you know what, Amber, if if I'm gonna challenge you, I would love to find that person and, and have them on the program and talk to them because I I I think that's a great story to tell. Got it. I, challenge accepted. So Frederick, you guys have seen uh, it at Assist the Officer. Y'all been with us from the start. Yep. Um, Y'all have, uh, just as uh, Heroes on the Water has, um, you've seen a lot of, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different ups and downs in, in our world and in our community and, and the things that have been positive and the things that have been negative. And the one to me that, that, that really kind of stands out is that infamous day in Dallas in July. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got two stickers on the back of my truck. Uh, one is uh, my daughter put an Aggie dad on there. So, you know, I couldn't, couldn't take that off. Uh, but the other is the uh, July 7th. Yep. Um, and I'd, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about that, uh, about that time and, and really more important, what did you take away from that time? You know, you, um, so, so I've been on, you know, tw going on my 26th year and in 26 years, I've buried 17 officers. So you kind of, you kind of stack them up with, with where they, you know, who they were you know, how close were you to them and, and, and what they meant to you and what they meant to the profession. And, and you, and you look back at that snapshot of all those officers and, and you, you, you can remember their faces, you can remember their conversations, you can remember the, whether you were on a canoe trip with one of them, uh, you can remember being in one's wedding and it's, and it's, and you just can't forget that. But on July 7th, you have a different, aspect of of kind of like like time stopped and uh, I was off it was it was an it was an evening deal we had we had already worked the the protests coming up to that uh, and we were off on that one uh, for whatever reason that that protest didn't make much of the radar uh, on the intel information uh, and so when I was sitting at dinner I saw a tweet come through and I'm like shooting in downtown Dallas and I'm, and I'm looking at it more and more. And I'm like, well, this is live. 
I made it downtown within 30 minutes from that dinner. And, and, and by the time I got there, I was pulling into Parkland and one of the officers was pulling into Parkland, uh, Gretchen, who, who had been shot three times. Uh, I think she took five total, but the couple of them were kind of like grazes that kept going. Uh, and she was pulling in with a squad, with a squad car and it was completely shot up and had uh, the back tires were gone and she had one of our dead officers in the back seat. So and she was the one driving. She was the one driving and she was shot and, and multiple times shot. And she drove that squad car from downtown to, to Parkland hospital like that and, and got him there. He was passed away at the time. And I, and I got there when Michael Smith was sitting in a chair and Michael Smith had had a few rounds taken into the, into the chest, but he was talking and, and breathing and they were taking him into surgery uh, and his wife walked in and we had the conversation. I, I told her that I'd spoke with him and that they were taking him into surgery. And I think we both felt really good about that at the time. Uh, but then within you know 15 minutes or so, they came down and pronounced him dead because when they opened him up, the wounds were just too much. Um, and, and so you have those, that situation that just kept going on through the, through the evening. And you, and you know, like even Lauren, you know, Lauren fought for forever. He was a, he was at Baylor hospital and Lauren was a monster. I mean, he was a big man. I mean, people think I'm big. This guy was a big man and, and he was like a walking door. And, and, and when Lauren was fighting and fighting and they had, he had gone through a second surgery and they just could not stop the bleeding. And, and when they brought him downstairs, I'll never forget this because the Lieutenant Governor had flown in and he had met me at, 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 uh, at Parkland and I kind of gave him an assessment of what was happening and what we had. And the Chief Brown was right there. And, and this is right when Chief Brown said, blow him up. And, and that's when they, they had put the uh, explosives with the, uh, with the robot and, and just lit him up. And, uh, and it, it, ended, it ended everything right then and there. But, but Lieutenant Governor wanted to know what was going on, what, what can I help with? And, and, he, and he did a great job of comforting some of those families, but he, what he did was better was the ones that were wounded. And because we had, we had 11 officers that had gunshots and, and other items, that, a lot of them were, 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 were scatter shots from the rounds that were coming down and grazes, but, but you still had a lot of, you know, Misty, who had been her her old arm where she had been almost lost it, and so you had a lot of you had a lot of hurt, broken people. But we go over to Baylor, uh, which is you know that's not that's not extremely far, but it's it's kind of out of the way. And the and they bring Lauren down, and they need to put him in the body bag. And the two nurses opened the door and said, "Can you guys come in and help? We can't get him in here. He's too big." And so myself and James Bristow, who's another officer that I've worked with for years, go in there and put Lauren in that body bag. And we both knew Lauren very well. And you can't, you can't unpack that, right? That's going to be with you for the rest of your life. And, and then we, you know, we do the, 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 we stand in attention and, and put him in the, into the hearse and you, 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 you go on about your day and you start all over again the next day back at work. And so, that day will be one of those days in history that you just never can forget because you had five officers killed and they were killed, I mean, like instantly because that gunman was so precise and he, and he was lucky. And, and the reason why he was lucky is because he had all these officers 
down there working a crowded a crowd control position protecting a crowd a protest they were they were protecting a protest for people that did not like the police and they were protecting them and and they had taken over the streets and they were being very you know they, they were being very respectful they weren't breaking anything doing anything to the officers but what that did was allow those officers to be in positions of vulnerability and that let that let that gunman do what he whatever he wanted to do because every corner he went to and everywhere he went down there there was officers and there was officers for him to kill so so you saw you saw two aspects of society in 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 especially that day in that that sequence of events one was the the horrible act of an individual who obviously was not in his right mind um, and in some ways may have echoed what some other people were, were willing to say and maybe even think. But then you saw the other side of it and, and the community. I, I don't know that I've ever seen the community come to the support of the police department no. the, way, the way they did that day. They did. They, they came to the and we had it, you know, it's it. Um, you know, when we when we went, to, I always kind of gauge how our session is going to go. Uh, when I say our session, our Texas our governmental session that we have every two years is going to go however the society... And by the way, Frederick is uh, involved in, in the government. So if for those so, of you who hadn't figured that out. <laughs> yeah, I, so myself and others, I do you know legislation for officers and, and what officers' needs are. And uh, so the day-to-day grind at, down here at the Capitol, we we are people of resource for to do testimony or or to figure out what bill is going to be a great one. And uh, I'll tell you, one of the bills that I designed years ago was the VEST bill to where, you know, all, all of our officers that were killed on 7-7 were shot with, a, with an AK, with a 7, uh, you know, that's, that, that, that round is, you know, 300 really round. So we didn't have anything at that time for, to protect ourselves with. So... I've, so I've, so I, I just want to make sure that the that the listeners uh, viewers understand the the AK-47 fires a, a, a certain size bullet that at the time the vest you guys had would not stand up to that. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, thank you for helping me get that out. <laughs> Sometimes it's not as easy. And so uh, I went. I'm to, a lot smarter than I look, Frederick. <laughs> you are tough. <laughs> and, and then so I had went to most of our manufacturers uh, that, that make our vest and said, what, what vest do we have that's a day-to-day vest that will stop a, a 308 round? And because that's pretty much the highest caliber round you can, to be able to wear a vest that, that comfortably that, the, that you would stop. And they're like, we don't have one. Uh, we, we don't have one yet. And then we, we're see, we saw what happened in Dallas. I said, somebody has to have one. Well, there's a little company uh, out of, in Utah, and, and they're, they were called Angel Armor. And, and so they made, which was funny, is the, the father and son designed Otterbox. And uh-huh. so they came up with a solution to, to, to weave the plastics together millions and millions of times, and that would make this plastic, and, your, your, and your, then your armor would only weigh a quarter, if not a tenth of what the armor would wear if you had to wear a big heavy vest. So I brought a, several of the samples back with me. I brought it here to the Capitol. I showed them 
look, we need to have some, this stuff is really expensive. These apartments can't, can't, they can't pay. We need the state to step up and, and, uh, and help. And that's when we came up with the best bill, uh, SB 147. And it came out to be one of the best bills because now every officer in the state of Texas can have the armor on and you don't even know it. Uh, Cause he can look like he's wearing his regular vest but he can be the rounds that those officers were killed with will now be stopped. Um, and so that, darn, I didn't realize that, that you were that instrumental in that Frederick. Yeah. And it, and it's those kind of bills that those legacy bills is what I call them. Those legacy bills, when you leave them behind and you know that, you know, you, you fix something, you fix something that was broken. And in every session, I try to come up with a legacy bill. This session's a little different because we're in a, we're in a, we're in an epidemic. We just had a, 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 a whatever everyone wants to call of our energy crisis with our snow, um, and and we just and we just we're in a recession. So we're we're trying what we're and, and we're coming off some of the biggest protests in the history of, of law enforcement. And so what we're trying to do down here is play a lot of defense. Uh, and and the one bill that I'm working on that's extremely important to the officers is the defunding bill. And, and so we're cities that try to defund law enforcement and their cities, just like Dallas did with the morons that sit on that council that all made those votes. And, and so what we, what we can do is take their sales tax. So if they take the budget out of what they want to defund the officers like they did in Austin, which was a huge hit immediately, then the government, which is the state, can come in and hold their sales tax and put it back into the, into the public safety and, and so that's a bill, we, we just had it up today. It was, it's, it's SB 23, it's a great bill by Joan Huffman. I'm hoping that it just walks its way right through and we get these cities scared and they start listening. Well, anything we can do obviously to, you know, protect those who protect us, um, to take care of those who took care of us is a good thing. Yep, and, and then I'm so, a tangent on all the governmental stuff, but but those are instrumental of how, you know, they but because what happens when you when you create a bill that fixes things or you create a bill that is going to uh, a, a momentum builder, and and a defunding bill and a vest bill, all those bills are momentum for officers. They see that somebody actually does care for them. They there's somebody sure. else, and so. That's why I look so much into those 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 type of bills because they're 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 ready to go and they're and they just need a vehicle and sometimes the vehicle just has to be a person like myself and then a legislator that's going to carry it because the legislators never set foot in a squad car the legislators never worked a protest a legis most of the time there are some very few mm -hmm. they have not seen this side of they have not been in the military they've never been a military wife they don't understand that life. They, they understand how they got elected. They went to school, they worked a job, they got elected and they've stayed legislators for a very long time. They have to have somebody come in and show them what is actually the functionality and the practicality of how this thing, these things work and why they need to be successful. Well, you may have heard I've, I had a visitor uh, come to the door. I apologize uh, to everybody for that. Um, so, and I, I think it's great, Frederick, that you guys are, are, are doing these, uh, uh, these things that, that help, um, th that are, are, are more defending against what could happen. Yes. And so, Amber, I, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about, about you or about the Heroes on the Water. 
Are you guys doing anything? Is there anything on the horizon? Uh, pardon the, the water pun there. Is there anything on, on the horizon that you guys are doing um, that you'd like to share with, uh, with the audience? Well, for right now, we are getting back on the water. 2020 was a little bit of a hiccup for everybody, but um, you know, it, it really put a, put a challenge on our volunteers and our chapters. Um, because gatherings were not allowed across most of the United States. So a lot of our volunteers had to pivot and go to some other type of way to reach out to the participants, reach out to the, the Heroes on the Water folks. So we had some virtual training. We had different things that um, the chapters were doing. But right now, other than a few chapters who are still under some mandates, um, we're just excited to get the season started and get back out on the water. Um, social distancing, masks, whatever the local um, policies are still being held, but we're just excited to get back back at it. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, we've got, obviously, we all had those challenges. Uh, I went and got my shot today, just, you know, so don't, don't worry about coming around me. Uh, I'll be okay. Um, the uh, one of the things, though, that, that I would be very interested to hear, Amber, is, um, you know, you, you talked about that that one experience that, that you had uh, or that, that you were told about that hooked you. How has being involved in Heroes on the Water, how has that impacted you personally? You did this from a very uh, supportive role as the wife of a soldier. Now you are on the we'll call it front lines, dealing with the, the, the aftermath. Is there any particular story or event that sticks out to you that you feel has really kind of sculpted you into more of who you are today? Absolutely. So a little bit of a, a backstory. So my husband was military uh, 20 years, 2008, we retired and we moved up here to Tulsa to be near family. Um, he started fishing, started kayak fishing, and found out about Heroes in the Water um, and went down to Dallas to um, one of the, the DFW chapter to witness an event. And then him and um, Casey, one of our other friends, the three of us started the Northeast Oklahoma chapter up here out of Tulsa. And that was in 2012, oh, 13. We're not fact checking. You'll be fine. Wow. Well, it, it seems like a little bit of yesterday, but. It really so not. Um, so I started helping that way as a volunteer. Just wanted to see what I could do to help other folks get what I knew my husband Rusty was getting out of these kayak experiences. Um, then a job opened up as an area coordinator to provide chapter support. In 2016, I started that. And that's where I've been since then. Um, one of the stories that I, I, it's always hurts my heart when I hear it, but I will tell it. Um, we had a gentleman who came to one of our events. This was about a couple of years ago. He brought his son who was probably eight or nine, okay, preteen, um, comes up to the table. We have registration. He shows up with his son, of course, eight o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning on Saturday is the last place and not an eight or nine year old boy wants to be. So his head is down, his shoulders are down. We're trying to talk to him. 
you know, do you want to get a drink? Do you want to get a snack? What can I do? And it's just grunting, you know, we just get the grunt, grunt, grunt. And the dad is trying his best to, you know, get everything. They go get their gear. They go and get on a tandem kayak. So it's a, it's a kayak that there's two seats. So the boys in the front and the dad's in the back go out and we always have a volunteer kind of hang around where it's within reason. So if they holler and they need help of any kind, somebody's within close enough distance to help them. Boy and his dad went out for a couple of hours. I am a, the photographer, chapter photographer, kind of amateur. And so I'm always on the shore when we get folks to come back in. And so, you know, when dad and boy goes out, boy is not happy, not smiling, frowning. And as they come around the corner, I can hear the boy alone. I can hear him just, I caught a fish and blah, blah. I mean, he is just loud as can be just chatting, chatting, chatting with the guide who's paddling next to him as they're coming back to shore. The shows up, the smile on his face was ear to ear. He gets out of the kayak and he's just so excited, completely different kid than he was two hours before. Like, do you need something to drink? Do you need a snack? Cause I'm a mom, you know, I'm going to mom. Yeah. So I grab him and we, you know, okay, well, let me go show you what we got left. And we head up the hill and we get, get him all kinds of snacks out, you know, boys all, all the time. And the dad pulls the volunteer, the one he'd been out on the water with him for a couple of hours. And he said with tears in his eyes, thank you. And the volunteer said, well, of course, you know, we're so glad you came, you know, we're glad to help. And he goes, no, you don't understand. My wife and I separated about three weeks ago and I've moved out and I'm now living somewhere else. And I've tried to connect with my son. I've tried to talk to him about these experiences and what's going on in the world, what, what's going on in our life now. And he said, I couldn't connect with them without a TV or a phone or an iPad distraction. But I was able during this time on the kayak where there's no distractions to be able to talk to him about what this now meant. What oh, it was awesome. now that mom and dad are separated, what this was going to mean. And he was able to ask questions. You know, you get, you get a kid distracted and, and doing something, they start talking, they start asking questions. And it, it was a life-changing moment for this dad and this son. And I didn't find out until much later in the afternoon that that had even happened because I'm up there feeding the boy. Um, that's what we try to do. We try to connect the families again in the outdoors, veterans, first responders, and their family members. Yeah, and, and, and you know, sometimes we think in terms of you know, we're just trying to get them to connect with their own feelings. But then, then we have scenarios like you just described uh, where they have difficulty connecting with their own family. And that's the real tragedy. That is the real tragedy. And, and I know that, you know, I've talked with, with Frederick about this before. I know they, they have these challenges in the police department all the time. And so, you know, and, and again, this is why we had both of y'all on here because we, we like to see, we like to show everybody how our organizations can and do fit together. Um, Amber, thanks for sharing that. That was awesome. That was awesome. And I, I'd like to thank you both for, for taking the time 
Uh, Frederick, old dear friend now, uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to see you, whether it's on camera or in person. Uh, Amber, I feel like I've, I've, I've known you for a long, long time already. Thank you all very much for being a part of, of Carry the Load. We just, we're humbled that, that y'all would take the time to come on here. We're humbled that, that y'all continue to be uh, the partners that you are and the, the ambassadors and the advocates for our mission that you are. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having us. I, Amber, it was awesome to be on here with you. And that, that was a great story. And I know that you can tell with the passion that you have, and the, it, it's all of us that do the same thing. You know, it, whether, whether we're doing something Heroes in Water or we're doing something ATO, it's the same mission. It's 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 really and and carry the load is is has brought us all has brought us all together to to fix that and I I I think the world of the organization uh, the people that run it I know Debbie Wright's probably watching this that and everyone that's there with Stephen Holly all the folks that have been part of this uh, they've made me better and a lot of people around them better. Well, and I I appreciate all those kind words and you know I I think uh, to echo something that Amber said. All of these organizations are about giving people hope. I mean, there's so much negativity out there, but there's so much reason to have hope. And, and you guys uh, do a wonderful job of spreading that hope. So again, thank you very much. And for everybody else out there, thank you for being a part of this. Uh, we are honored that you would let us come into your homes. And remember, always, always, always have a good answer to this question. Who are you caring about?